Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and thanks for joining me here today on The Communication Architect. In each episode, we build up the communication competencies that empower you to develop greater emotional health and relational resilience, essential skills for both personal and organizational leadership. We'll unpack some practical applications around the four main spheres of communication, connecting these with stories of transformation that will inspire you to achieve personal and social change. In season two, we're exploring some strategies to make you a more effective communicator in group and organizational settings like the marketplace and ministry. Today's episode is an extended version of a presentation I just gave to our church's creative team, and I think you'll find that these practices will benefit your organization as well. Healthy, positive, strategic communication is the key to success in our organizations. Let's use today's teaching to build the scaffolding we need to become a communication architect. A few years ago, a San Jose newspaper published the transcript of a 911 call. A frantic driver had called the police department to report that a mattress had fallen off of a truck and was flipping dangerously down the interstate. But instead of focusing on the issue, the mattress, the driver and dispatcher spent the whole call arguing about whose responsibility it was to notify Highway Patrol. The driver's last recorded words before he hung up were, fine, I'll just let someone get killed. And that's exactly what happened. A moment later, the mattress slammed into a car, the car flipped off the road, and the driver was killed. Faulty communication claimed a life that day. Now, our conversations might not be quite that dramatic or that deadly, hopefully, but we all know that communication skills can make or break a company, a family, a team, a church. As one of my favorite PhD professors, the late Dr. Barnett Pierce put it, we are, quote, making social worlds with our words. We were created in the image of a relational, communicative God, so our words carry power. And if we steward them well, they can become agents of healing instead of deadly projectiles. Communication is internal, it's horizontal, it's vertical, and all three of these relational directions need to be in order for us to be effective communicators. As we've talked about in past episodes, our perception of ourselves and others largely influences how we interpret what other people are saying to us. Our relationships with others influence our sense of self and our perceived abilities, and our vertical relationships, both with God and with those in authority over us, play a vital role in both our internal and our external communication patterns. For a little more on self-talk, check out Season 1, Episode 2, The War of Words. Today, let's look at one of the Bible's great communicators, the Apostle Paul, and his letter to the Corinthian church. Now, this church was plagued with problems. The Corinthians were steeped in sexual immorality, division, arrogance, and theological confusion. But despite their challenges, Paul starts his letter of correction with gratitude for them. He tells them that he's thankful for them and reminds them of what God has already done in their lives. Then he corrects their behavior with love, humility, and directness. That's the posture of a good communicator. At the end of that section, Paul even asks, shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? That's a rhetorical question, of course, but we'll answer it aloud here. We'll take the latter option, please. I love Paul's model. He affirmed, he disclosed, and he confronted. First, we affirm. Christian leadership expert and pastor John Maxwell calls this affirmation before confrontation. Affirming is showing value, appreciation, respect, or recognition. Now, I'm not talking about flattery. That's a whole other motive. Flattering lips work ruin. 
Hebrews 3.13 says, exhort one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That word exhort, parakaleo in the Greek, literally means to call near, to invoke, to comfort. We are to call near and comfort one another daily. Isn't that cool? Encouragement is protective. When people don't feel valued, they can become hardened, isolated, or burned out, especially the youngest generation. We'll talk about that in just a minute. We're literally wired for a relationship. In fact, social scientist David Papineau goes so far as to say that the most dangerous person in society is the unattached male. That is, someone without personal attachments is more likely to commit crimes because he lacks that same depth of value of relationships. They're protective for all of us. When a person has low levels of emotionally intimate connections, he or she may become withdrawn, have decreasing levels of self-esteem, turn hostile or mean, or turn to self-destructive behaviors. But the reverse is also true. Close personal relationships, lower blood pressure, increase our ability to cope with stress, reduce rage and criminal behavior, and provide greater longevity. The benefits of, of relationship are clear. As human beings, we need more than contact. We need real connection and friendship. We need to feel known and understood. Why does affirming work? Well, Proverbs 16.21 says that pleasant words promote instruction. Sweetness of lips increases learning, which is poetic, but also powerfully scientific. Harvard professor Dr. Sean Aker has proven that pleasant words literally open the neural pathways of learning. In other words, positivity makes the task of acquiring knowledge easier and more profitable. We actually learn more when people are kind. Now, if you're a Gen Xer, a millennial, a boomer, a buster, you might be thinking, well, I don't need affirmation to do my job well. And that's true for a lot of people from those generations. Although I would argue that we all need to have a sense of value. However, our youngest generation is not motivated in the same way that other generations were. As I wrote about extensively in my latest book, The Multi-Generational Marketplace, Gen Zs will engage much more readily when they feel valued and when they receive regular positive feedback. We know that our youngest workers need relationship and ongoing encouragement. We know they want an open communication format that helps them feel believed in and that it's okay to make mistakes. They need lots of affirmation. They need community. And they need to feel valued for their contributions. And most often they want that value to come from a supervisor or boss. The root of affirming is value. Value is a way of showing consideration and appreciation to others. It means noticing and validating others' works, their efforts, their character. It means creating a culture that sees employees as more than cogs in a machine. In a culture of value, people are supported and encouraged rather than being used, abused, or taken for granted. And value increases engagement. Engagement means creating a culture where synergistic exchanges fuel new and creative methodologies, products, and services. A culture where everyone uses his or her gifts and and talents for the good of the bigger picture. A place where there's no one sitting on the sidelines. In his book, Developing the Leaders Around You, John Maxwell writes that as organizational leaders, we must become thermostats instead of thermometers. One is passive, simply recording the environment, and the other is active, assessing, addressing, and impacting the environment. As a leader, you are called to be a thermostat. We have to assess and address those organizational needs so that we can have direct pro-social impact on the cultures where we work. 
Princeton professor Kevin Cruz wrote in Forbes magazine that engagement is measured by our emotional connection to our organization. And if that's true, then we would do well to engage fully and authentically in this realm. How do we use affirmation? Some people have a hard time affirming others. They can quickly find something to criticize in another person, but it's very difficult for them to find something they can appreciate. This is linked to two states, their own sense of esteem or sense of self, and probably their lack of personal gratitude as a lack, as a habit of the heart. Christian leadership expert John Maxwell says that we find the 1% we can affirm and we give it 100% of our focus. Look for the good. Affirmation comes from being grateful instead of entitled. If it's easier for you to see the negative than the positive, ask God to help you develop your gratitude muscle. And be sure to check out the work of Dr. Robert Emmons from UC Davis, one of the world's leading researchers in the field of gratitude. Just as we enter God's presence with thanksgiving, we want to speak to our, our teammates and our employees with value, honor, and respect. And I'm not saying don't be a realist. I'm not saying we don't correct or confront. We're going to get to that process in a moment. But healthy organizations have a culture of value and honor. This is a communicative DNA that should dwell richly within our organizations if we're setting that thermostat. Charles Schwab once said, I have yet to find the man, however exalted in station, who did not do better work and put forth greater effort under a spirit of approval than under a spirit of criticism. I'm reminded of a recent news story where a 22-year-old girl was sentenced to prison for texting her boyfriend that he should kill himself. Tragically, he did. The state recognized that though she was physically absent as a defendant who, quote, encouraged other person, another person to commit suicide through words alone, end quote, her words were a powerful catalyst in his life and in his death. Ultimately, her words were much like that mattress flipping down the highway, reckless and deadly. Words have tremendous power of influence on both our beliefs and our behavior. Affirmation will help you build up your organization and strengthen relationships. So if you want to get the best out of your teams, use affirmation before confrontation. The second pattern we see in Paul's letter is disclosure. Christian author Dr. Quentin Schultz defines authentic communication as a, quote, kind of mutual faithfulness in which each party knows where the other is in the relationship. I love the stability this definition provides. We don't have to guess if we're on someone's good side or bad side any given day. Mature leaders are unconditionally accepting of others and themselves. Authentic communication is built on honesty and empathy, truth and grace. Without grace, truth will be harsh, condemning, difficult to swallow. Without truth, grace will be sloppy, awkward, unbounded. The balance of both provides authenticity. Instead of hiding his challenges, Paul tells the Corinthians in chapter 4, he's weak, he's held in disrepute, he's hungry, thirsty, poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless. He reveals weakness, imperfection. In its basic form, self-disclosure is sharing something about ourselves. Why does it work? Well, in the social sciences, we look for patterns of behavior that can inform our intentional interactions. One of the clear patterns we see in interpersonal communication is that we can't gain emotional closeness with another person without revealing something of ourselves. James 5.16 says we are to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we might be healed. And there's a cathartic process here, both spiritual and biological principles at work. When we disclose something authentic, specifically 
specifically something unflattering, the listener's brain releases a neuropeptide called oxytocin, the bonding hormone. It opens up the trust receptors in our brain. This hormone was initially known only for its impact in like uterine contractions, infant attachment, sexual intimacy. But today we know that this quote love hormone is far more complex. It's a multitasker that affects recognition, trust, anxiety, and stress. It's it's a neuropeptide that God designed within your body to enhance your interpersonal relationships. I mean, I think that's pretty cool. Dr. Paul Zak of Claremont University is one of the leading researchers in the field, and he studied oxytocin, the quote, moral molecule, as he calls it in his book, all over the world in all types of situations. He believes that oxytocin fosters pro-social behaviors, including trust, stronger relationships, and generosity. Low oxytocin levels have been linked to depression, schizophrenia, and autism. And in fact, Zach's fascinating research has even shown that countries that are more trusting with one another also experience greater economic prosperity. Definitely something to think about with our organizations there. Oxytocin also has other pro-social benefits. It increases empathy and deepens social ties. UC Santa Barbara researchers Tamir and Mitchell found that self-disclosure creates an environment where people feel socially connected and that social connection leads to greater persistence, greater enjoyment of the task, increased performance, and greater self-responsibility. It is a total win-win for our teams when we create environments of trust and camaraderie. Now, research shows us that social support itself is tremendously beneficial physically and physiologically. An article in the Journal of Psychiatry in 2016 notes a reduction in heart rate, blood pressure, cortisol levels, fewer incidences of disease, and even a longer lifespan for those with socially supportive relationships. Paul told the church in Corinth, we have, speak, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, he said, open wide your hearts also. Instead of closing ourselves off emotionally for, from others, God calls us to, quote, open wide our hearts and love. And opening our hearts to others increases the level of support we give and receive. Disclosure leads to trust, and trust leads to empathy, better performance, health, persistence, and self-responsibility. This is a total win-win for any organization. So how do we disclose? We can share our testimonies, our failures, our lessons learned. I know this is hard because individualistic nations like ours are trained to self-protect, but self-protection doesn't lead to open communication, trust, or unity, and unity should be our goal. These peeling back the veneer moments serve as a kind of connective tool, fostering deeper relationships and helping the other person feel heard and connected. Open communication environments are vital for trust. The litmus test of an open communication environment is where team members feel safe sharing opinions, even when they differ from others. If people in your organization are afraid to say what they think or feel, we probably don't have an open, authentic environment. Leroy Kurtz, who was the PR manager for General Motors, once said, the fields of industry, and I would add churches, are strewn with the bones of organizations whose leadership became infested with dry rot, who took more than they gave, and who forgot that the only asset that can't be replaced is people. If this is a challenge for you, ask the Lord to show you, are you works-oriented, great, ungrateful, demanding, maybe fearful of opening up? Is pride keeping you from being real with others? 
Out of the overflow of your self-talk and self-view, we'll treat others and love others as we see and love ourselves. We will be far more effective at sharpening one another when we walk in unity. So let's build that unifying trust through affirmation and disclosure. Finally, Paul demonstrates the third point, confrontation. Now, confrontation is dealing directly and honestly with an issue or a perceived issue. Good communicators do not ignore conflict. They manage conflict. They see it as an opportunity for growth. Conflict will come. Tough conversations will come. The question is, how will we handle them both as givers and receivers? You know, many people are so apprehensive or avoidant of conflict that their relationships never grow deep roots. If someone offends us, what should we do? First, we go to that person. We call this the Matthew 18 principle. Conflict is not an opportunity for gossip. We don't go to somebody else about the problem we have with that person. In fact, if someone can't be part of the solution, we really don't need to make them part of the problem. And not every offense needs correction or a two-hour counseling session. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves, as Proverbs 19.11 says, that it is to a man's glory to overlook an offense. Keep short accounts with God and with one another. Confrontation can be tricky with some personalities. Phlegmatics and sanguines generally dislike confrontation and will work to avoid it at all costs. Melancholy's creatives will be affected differently. They have deep emotions. As artists, melancholies were designed with this ability to capture the natural realm and translate it into works of art that inspire the human soul. But that natural sensitivity means we're more susceptible to things like rumination, perfectionism, overanalysis, taking ourselves too seriously, give me an amen if you relate to any of those characteristics. We have to govern that gift and our emotions. So how do we confront? One of my favorite all-time culture shapers, Booker T. Washington, said, there are two ways to exert power, by pushing down or by pulling up. When we realize we've offended someone, we are to leave our gift at the altar and go and make it right. Close relationships breed both delight and dispute, the greatest joys and the greatest pains. Conflict can be tremendously beneficial, but again, so many people are fearful of jumping in and really facing that conflict. In his book, The Relational Principles of Jesus, Saddleback Pastor Tom Halliday says, your heart will always leak out into your actions. If we have a grudging in someone, it's going to find its way into our conversations and our actions. Again, that's another reason we want to keep those short accounts. Confrontation works because it's honest, it's healing, and it's biblical. So how do we confront without seeming like a jerk? How do we start those difficult conversations that people may be tiptoeing around uncomfortably in the workplace environment? First, we want to keep our hearts open. You know, we talked earlier about Paul's admonition to the Corinthians that we open wide our hearts. Also, we keep ourselves open open emotionally to others. Second, we want to make sure there are parameters. When we have a confrontation, we want to make sure we set a time and a space and we're specific about what the offense is. It's not just this whole connected glob of things that have happened, but we're specific about one one instance that we want to address. We want to keep our emotions regulated. Emotions inform us. They don't master us. 
We want to be aware of our stress levels, especially our cortisol impact. I talked about this in an earlier episode, but cortisol left unchecked can fuel fiery, unproductive conflicts. And it differs in women's body than in men's body. Cortisol has a different effect on on the body for men than it does for women. Suzanne Binkner has done a beautiful job of exposing this scientific phenomena from more of a sociocultural perspective in her book, The Alpha Female's Guide to Love and marriage. And she outlines why alpha women leaders are often successful in the marketplace, but failures on the home front. It's, it's, it's a brutally honest, a really a great book. Um, it's not the, the science of this, what I'm talking about, but it really illustrates it from a sociocultural perspective. And we want to choose our words carefully. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And that word building up literally means like the foundation, the base of a house. Dr. John Gottman, whom I mentioned in the last episode, he's that psychologist who has voted one of the most influential therapists of the last quarter of a century, says that we must always avoid what he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse in communication. First is criticism. He says, focus on behavior, not character. Second is contempt. He says, show respect, not a position of superiority or arrogance. Third, he says, is defensiveness. We want to avoid self-protection, whether that's as self-righteousness or as victimhood. And we want to avoid stonewalling, emotional withdrawal, or the silent treatment. Proverbs 15.1 says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. In fact, researchers have found that when we criticize people, they either defend or cocoon. They either flare up or wall off. That is not bringing out the best in our employees. C.S. Lewis warned us not to castrate the geldings and bid them be fruitful. You know, if we want our, our organizations to soar, we have to empower our people rather than crush them. What if you're on the other side of the fence? What if you have to receive correction? How do you do that? Well, first, you know, I'd say trust the process of team development of that iron sharpening iron process. Remember Proverbs 27, 6, it says, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. We want to keep our hearts open wide on both ends. Think of it like a coach in a sport. We want a coach to coach us, right? So we can get better. We want to keep our emotions regulated, just like we said with giving correction. And dealing with perceptions can be one of the hardest parts of that process in terms of emotion regulation. Now, when words are purposefully destructive, we have to look at their trajectory. And we've probably all been on the on the receiving end of, of words that were intended to harm us. We have to deflect those kind of fiery darts through knowledge and truth. When words are sent out as those purposeful darts, it helps to know that critical words usually originate from a critical spirit. When we look at the common ground for people with low self-esteem versus high self-esteem, LSE people are more likely to disapprove of others, to expect to be rejected by others, and to feel threatened by people they view as superior. People with LSE low self-esteem are more likely to be verbally aggressive toward others, to use their words as weapons. As Infante wrote in the Journal of Personality Assessment, verbal aggression from people with LSE can include character attacks, competence attacks, physical appearance attacks, maledictions, which is wishing ill fortune, teasing, ridicule, threats, nonverbal signs. 
Now, really, this shouldn't surprise us. When speaking of the greatest commandments, Jesus said that we must not only love God, but we also must love others as we love ourselves. There's this tiny but vital presupposition in that statement. A healthy sense of one's own value as a person, as a child of God, is a necessary ingredient for loving others in a healthy manner. As Nathaniel Braden wrote in The Psychology of Romantic Love, if we do not love ourselves, it is almost impossible to believe fully that we are loved by someone else. It's almost impossible to accept love, he says. It's almost impossible to receive love. No matter what the other person does to show that he or she cares, we do not experience the devotion as convincing because we do not feel lovable to ourselves, end quote. Our self-perception has a significant influence on our interpretation of confrontation. I once had a student who was terrified of public speaking. She said she would faint, throw up, maybe even die if I made her speak in public. But it was a public speaking class, so there was no way around that mountain. Her mom got involved, asking me not to make her speak. Now, secretly behind the scenes, that was slightly terrifying for me because I grew up without a mom and I have this kind of mom phobia. But I worked hard with the student all semester. She gained confidence, she spoke in front of other human beings, and she did not pass out, throw up, or die. Yay for me. At the end of the semester, though, I get this email from her mom, and it's entitled, the subject line, Constructive Criticism. And I was like, what? Does this woman know how hard I worked with her daughter? I had this whole narrative running through my head. It literally took me three days to open the email. Constructive criticism, indeed. When I finally clicked the email open, it read, Thank you for your constructive criticism in my daughter's life. She has blossomed under your teaching. Okay, well, her problematic subject line aside, that was my issue, my perception dictating my interpretation of the conversation. Make sense? Philippians 2, 2 through 4 says, We are to be one in spirit and purpose, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider other, considering others better than ourselves. As employees, we need to believe the best of one another. And if I had believed the best of that mom, I would not have taken three days to open her email. The goal of confrontation should always be building others up and walking in unity. If we handle conflict well, it can be a powerful agent for connection, for growth, for trust. As John Maxwell says, we always have to make sure we love our people more than our position. So the goal of confrontation is building up. And communication is a skill set. You know, the attitude with which we approach our daily struggles and even our daily victories in communication will set the pace for our future relationships and our future decisions. We train our minds to see through the lens of truth, not the fleeting lens of emotion, because honestly, things are not always what they seem. I mean, think about the disciples. You know, they thought their king was dead and their dreams were over, but the veil was torn in two, the stone was rolled away, and the world world was changed forever. What looked like a tragic loss was actually the setup for an unparalleled victory. Remember that conflict can look a lot like loss in the moment, but if we handle it correctly, it can be a powerful agent for connection, growth, and trust. As believers, it's often easy for us to remember that we're ambassadors to those outside the walls of our organization, but we are also ambassadors to those within our organization. A tree will be known by its fruit. Healthy team communication should foster character, trust, unity. It should build up rather than tear down. It should unite us. 
If we practice these principles of affirming, disclosing, and confronting, we will find our teams flourishing. And instead of deadly projectiles flipping down the highways of life, our words will become agents of hope and healing. Thanks again for joining us here on The Communication Architect. If you have questions about today's episode or if there are other communication-related topics you'd like to see us address, send your comments via Instagram to at Dunn or via email to communicationarchitect at drlisadunn.com. Don't miss the next episode where we'll be unpacking some more incredibly practical research from my latest book, The Multi-Generational Marketplace. This next episode will give you a step-by-step process of core communication competencies that will take your leadership to the next level. Break free of friction, frustration, and fault-finding in both the organizational and interpersonal communication realms. Remember, strategic communication will help you build greater emotional health and relational resilience, so don't miss the next episode. Until then, I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and I look forward to talking with you next time right here on The Communication Architect. Oh,